you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Jagap Chung founded Studio Jesse I with his partner Su Jin Chung in 2007, with the shared goal of creating timeless buildings that contribute to the social, economic, and cultural fabric of cities. A commitment to finding creative, practical, and affordable solutions to Toronto's urban planning problem led to the development of the Multitouch, a long-term, sustainable, multi-generational solution to the problem of Toronto's affordable housing crisis and its missing middle challenge, among many others of Toronto's most interesting buildings in the last few years. Today we're discussing yet another time Toronto's chronically undersupplied housing stock, and we will discuss it over and over again until things change. I'm looking at you, politicians. Uh, Jacob, thank you very much for indulging in my city building obsession. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to the show as a guest, and uh, I hope we'll have a very productive conversation. Thanks, Arnold. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. So tell us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less. Um, I like to see myself as a problem solver. Um, you know, where we don't just pick, you know, pretty materials, uh, for buildings, but we, um, need to solve problems. I think, um, you know, when I went to school, the projects that got a lot, garnered a lot of attention tend to be, you know, ones that are graphically displayed really, you know, pretty beautiful pictures, beautiful renderings, and those skills are, are important, but I think equally important our skills to uh, to be able to problem solve, to bring uh, not only designers but sort of other disciplines together, to be able to um, to to look at uh, issues from a different vantage point and to say, okay, how can we improve and how do we make better? And those skills, those problem solving skills, are becoming even more relevant and important, especially in this po- post pandemic world. Um, and I think that was our impetus for starting this kind of multi-touch initiative. Sounds great. So it's widely accepted now that the country in Toronto specifically has a housing problem. And I realized that it's a very complex problem that has a lot of, uh, ramifications, but what is it in your opinion? How would you summarize it, uh, briefly and, and maybe you can start hinting at some of the solutions that we'll talk about later in the interview. Uh, yes, so you're right. The issue is complex and there's many different layers. Uh, but I just want to... Uh, so the way that the city, like for example, the city of Toronto has, uh, you know, kind of in, in its inception has always been this, uh, uh, this, this, you know, the, 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 the terminology that uh, we like to use, the green belt, uh, you know, which takes up about 75% of the land mass of the G- GTA. And um, 
of, of which 66% of the, of the green belt is, has been designated as single detached home, right? Designated as single detached. And to try to do anything otherwise, you are fighting an uphill battle and almost near impossible. Um, Just to clarify, are you talking about the green belt or the yellow belt? The yellow belt. Okay. Did I say the green belt? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay. I meant the yellow belt. No worries. Um, yeah, the yellow belt. And so we, so invariably what the OP policies force developers to build only within that kind of intensification zones, the avenues mm -hmm. and along the kind of the Young Street corridor and the downtown area where all the housing needs have, has to be addressed along that corridor. Mm -hmm. And that's, and, and, and so as a built form, as a city, you'll see so many high rises along that Young Street corridor. Um, and oftentimes what we get, like I live in a neighborhood where I live, you know, like half a block to a 20 story high rise tower. There's a road and then there's two story single family. And then it becomes one story mm -hmm. uh, bungalows that are like in walking distance from, I live about 15 minutes from a subway line mm -hmm. and huge lots, like 50 foot lots. And so that is an easy thing for the planning policies to change and say, well, if you're within a certain distance from the subway station and you're you know, living right along Young Street, um, you know, it makes sense for those homes to be multi-unit, multi-tenanted, the missing middle, so to speak, mm -hmm. and open up the zoning to be able to do that. Um, but the reality is um, because the way that the OP policies have been written, they are considered sort of stable neighborhoods. And stable neighborhoods, you know, from a planning policy point of view, are like a no-go zone. You don't want to touch it. And they're not designated. They're, they've been like preserved as... Uh, kind of almost like economic gated communities mm -hmm. that prohibit somebody like a younger or immigrant to come in and buy uh, and live in those areas. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, and and it, it speaks to what we're talking about just before the interview is that um, there is for a lot of people, and, and it, this is broad generalization, a desire to keep things as they are because they're the incumbents that got into the market when it was feasible And now they're worried that their wealth is going to be wiped away by a condo being built at the end of their street, uh, which we know as NIMBYs. Um, but what's your take on advocating for people that either can't afford at this point to live in those neighborhoods and worse still, the people that are not yet living in the city, but there's like hundreds of thousands of people that are expected to move to the GTA in the next few decades. And these will need to find housing. Um, What, and, and you've talked about the, uh, a little bit about the multi-touch and some of your own solutions to that problem. But what do you think will happen if we don't do anything and, and, uh, and don't work really hard to make that city livable for everyone? So I think um, there's different ways to look at the problem. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, some municipalities think that the right way to say is to ghettoize and create, you know, we're going to we're going to make this community, you know, a uh, kind of a high rise community and we're going to build it, you know, in junction area or Etobicoke or, you know, this kind of West St. Lawrence zone is now becoming a really, really quite popular. And we're going to designate these zones as, as being kind of high intensity areas and, and then tr try to meet and address all of your housing needs there and mm -hmm. only there. Um, 
it's it's basically creating sort of uh you know areas where um you're you're putting so much stress on a very limited set of areas right because now instead of uh you know that area which used to house you know i don't know a thousand people per kilometer now you've got ten thousand people mm-hmm. and now all of your 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 services and uh, water sewage and all that capacity has to keep up to be able to house all those people um is is not only costing the taxpayers a lot of money but it's sort of ghettoizing that kind of zone and, and same thing with affordable housing you know, the province has announced, uh, sorry, the federal government has announced some initial, you know, new initiatives to, for affordable housing. We all know that that's important, but invariably what ends up happening is then they kind of demarcate certain zones for affordable housing and you, they build, you know, uh, you know, high, high rise affordable housing and then, and that's where they house everybody there. And it becomes another St. Jamestown or it mm-hmm. becomes another Regent Park where you end up sort of ghettoizing neighborhoods. Um, I think, what what our kind of policy and thinking is with the multi-touch initiative is is instead of you know concentrating development in one or two areas mm-hmm. why not just like evenly spread it up so you know in my talk and and based on our research if we looked at one percent adoption in the current uh available r ra and rm mm-hmm. zone one percent Adoption of the multi-touch. Of the multi-touch. Mm-hmm. We're talking about 10,000 extra units, okay, which is equivalent to about 25 high-rises. For the whole city? For This is only in the R zone, which is only in the 30% of the of the yellow belt, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Only in the R zone. Yeah. Okay. Now, if we take that to an R, and if we take that to 18%, that's equivalent to 350,000 units. Again, not in one area. I'm talking about a kind of a more of an ec- equitable distribution right yeah. we're not talking about putting everybody in one area or not no we're just saying just evenly spreading it out start with the mtsa zone start with the the subway lines start with the bus the, the you know the bus lines start with start there and just just we're talking about very gentle densification and we're talking about only about 18 percent adoption of a, of a given residential block so so that the insertion is very gentle and very yeah. discreet that's three hundred and fifty thousand. now if get this, Arno, if we take that idea and you apply it to the entire RD zone, mm-hmm. so now we're talking about the entire yellow belt, mm-hmm. which goes up to Steels, which is where I live. I live in an RD zone. Then we are talking about the possibility at 18% adoption. I'm not even talking about half. We're talking about 18% adoption brings about 1.2 million family-sized thousand square foot residential multi multiplex units 1.2 million what's the current deficit of units as of today in the city i've heard that number a while back but i can't remember what it is do you know i'm not entirely sure but we 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 are facing about 40 to 50 thousand a year deficit in terms of housing Mm -hmm. right so and and that's been accumulating so you know the 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 housing issue can be resolved without having to concentrate our development along the you know the young street and the avenue corridors yeah, and there are neighborhoods where this happened organically i live in roncesville roncesville is organic exactly it's where happening. all most of the houses along parkside yeah. drive which yeah. is a more a busier street most of them are multi-unit residential they've been mm-hmm. converted mm-hmm. over the years the right. house i live in is that right. way 
And then if you go into the side streets, it's all single family residential. And right. it's a very extremely pleasant neighborhood to be in. Right, right. So uh, there are precedents in the city of that already existing and not really being an issue. And we don't have issues with our neighbors. The, one, the owners, the renters, they're all fine. And great. And, you know, based on our research, like we did a lot of research. We went to Montreal. Mm -hmm. We looked at the kind of the you know, the three-story kind of units that exist in old Montreal. We looked at Boston. The, the, they're called the triple-deckers. Yeah. In the old historic part of Boston, they have like these three with balconies on each side. You know, we explored um, London. London has something very similar. Brooklyn also has, you know, our great examples of cities that we would never call them third. You know, they're not third-world cities. They're great cities. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful places to be in. And it works. And you know what, Arno? Like, Uh, what I find about those cities is that they're very walkable, first of all, because mm -hmm. they, they have more generous sidewalks. There's more people on the street, which makes them safer. And uh, because there's more people in concentration, there's less cars. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it creates for a better community. People are happier. Um, you know, there's more access to light, sunlight, and you know, as opposed to, Don't get me wrong. Like I, there's, I mean, I'm from Asia. Like I, I grew up in, you know, a city of high rises. Mm -hmm. I'm from Seoul. Like mm -hmm. Seoul is flooded with high rises. I've been to Seoul. It's yeah. quite impressive. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's no, there's not a place for high rises. Mm -hmm. Certainly there is, mm -hmm. but high rises and mid rises cannot be the only solution for housing in the city. It just cannot. And currently the on the supply side, over 85% of the new supply is in the form of a high-rise and a mid-rise condominium. Mm -hmm. And and that's not, it's not balanced. It's not a balanced... Well, you can't solution. live in a city of high-rises the way downtown is because you can't make the whole city downtown or it's going to be completely soulless and, and not pleasant to be in. It works for certain areas, obviously. Yeah. Um, but you, so you said in your introduction that you like to think, think of yourself as a problem solver. And I think it's fair to say that Uh, architects are increasingly used as mere service providers, like we're going to put plans together for you and be done with it. How do you think they could become more than just hired guns and, and truly maximize the value offering? Because architects are very creative and, and you know, they, they can come up with great solutions to complex problems. Yeah. But how do you get out of that kind of habit that the industry and the culture has um, kind of pigeonholed the architects into? No, I think that's a very good question. When I was in school, we were taught that as architects, we're leaders, right? But the reality is uh, we haven't been functioning in that role because our, 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 um, our role was primarily in, in the role of a service provider, you know, doing the drawings and, you know, getting a set of, you know, a set of drawings approved and, uh, uh, with, the, with the city. But I think, I believe there's a new generation of architects that are coming up that are thinking not just about providing a service, but really taking leadership and saying, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to solve, uh, we're going to solve this. We're going to tackle this issue. And in order to do that, I need to bring on a, bring on an MBA, a finance guy. I need to bring on a, a builder, a seasoned builder. I need to bring on a, a marketing person and mm -hmm. to be able to kind of address these kind of challenges in a, in a, from a new kind of a vantage point. Mm -hmm. uh, what it means, however, is that, it, and I think it starts with the school. 
because what kind of architects are we creating in our schools? And if we can, like, for example, teach our young, you know, graduates how to think outside the box and really start tackling. So, like, you know, instead of doing a thesis project about, you know, I see so many thesis project about a beautiful art gallery or a beautiful, you know, community center. Mm-hmm. And um, those are beautiful buildings and projects. Community centers are fine, but community centers are financed by the municipality and they're paid for by the government. They're not intrinsically, they, they have no, like, they're not, um, uh, they're they're not the center of commerce, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to think very carefully about who are the city builders today. The city builders are the developers, right? And they're the ones, Mm -hmm. right? And the developers have very, very strong and deep ties to, uh, to and access to money. And they're the ones influencing the way that we, that the way um, the cities get built and formed. Um, many of them are very conscientious developers and they're fantastic at what they do and they provide a phenomenal service to the community and to, and to the city. Um, many of them do, but many of them are only motivated by, you know, the almighty dollar. And so you get a kind of a varying group. But I think if we can, but the reason why in, they're in that table calling the shots is because they have they have uh, control over those resources, mm-hmm. right? And they're calling the shots. I think it's also very easy to shit on developers because eh, some of them are bad, like any profession. <laughs> But the reality is they're also dealing with a lot of forces that tie their hands absolutely the the zoning the building code all those regulations they have to contend with absolutely it's 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 not an easy job it's it's a high risk it's very very difficult and it's challenging it requires uh you to know a lot so you know we've we've been thankful we're partnering up with some phenomenal developers that think outside the box Mm -hmm. and we're able to kind of service them in in a way that um they're able to kind of see things a little bit more differently um uh But it's a challenge, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think um, our success as a firm has been, you know, attributed to our ability to kind of think outside the box to meet some of their their needs in a in a more creative way. Um, yeah, and I think your portfolio speaks to that for sure. Um, so you, you've you've come up with a few solutions. We talked briefly about the multi-touch, and there's also that initiative called Clip Homes to maybe some of those problems we've been discussing. Can you tell us a little more about them? Yeah, so the multi-touch initiative is is more of an advocacy. You know, we've been working with the Ehon Group, um, the, which is the Ehon stands for Expanded Housing uh, Options for Neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a initiative that the City of Toronto has, has undertaken, and under the Ehon initiative, things like the Garden Suite and the Laneway Bylaw was passed. Uh, it was ad- adopted by Council and mm-hmm. passed. Unfortunately, currently under appeal, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but uh, that was passed. They are also now in the in the process of trying to get this thing called a multiplex initiative, um, and that's in the dialogue. And hopefully, that will come you know come to council, hopefully sometime this year for mm-hmm. for it to pass. And we're actively involved. And in so, what is that initiative? The multiplex is one? the is the multi it's the multiplex initiative is really a direct result of our you know multi touch is very you know the triplex and the fourplex mm-hmm. model, and uh, the city. Um, You know, we've been working with uh, the Ryerson City Institute and in getting that messaging out, and uh, the city is really catching on to that, and they're really seeing a benefit. So, 
that initiative is being headed by uh, two planners in the city, Philip uh, Parker and uh, Melanie Melniak, and uh, they're fantastic and they're mm -hmm. really forward-thinking, um, you know, planners that are really listening and they want to make, they want to instigate change. So I really want to thank them for, for that. Um, and uh, so, so that's the kind of the, the advocacy and the initiative side. Uh, Clip Homes uh, is a company that we formed with a couple of other um, uh, partners to Clip actually stands for City, city Living is Possible, <laughs> C-L-I-P. Um, and Clip was, it was kind of designed and its mandate is to, is sort of the implementor of the initiative, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically, if, if multi-touch is about asking, you know, what, can we do and how do we um, get that messaging out to the public? Clip is about, okay, now how do we take that, create a business case around it? How do we build uh, with efficiency? How do we make that work? So, you know, Clip, for Clip, in order to make that work, it's not just about being an architect or planner or a builder. It's about being able to bring all of that together with the expertise and providing a kind of a financial option and a solution for the homeowner. So, is it a prefab-based solution? So the product itself, uh, the, our, our focus right now is on the garden suite. Mm -hmm. Go a little small, start yeah. small. Uh, we were, we're very much focused on developing the garden suite model. But that's the product and, and using panelization uh, and, uh, the, and also looking at ways to streamline construction. So we've been looking at various different models. We're, we've got a, um, a workshop and we're building a pilot or we're mm -hmm. hoping to build something uh, by the summer, an actual one-to-one -one scale oh, pilot. That's great. You know, it'll be, um, uh, we're looking at, at, you know, cool design, but equally we're very interested in the kind of the process and how do we, you know, how do we uh, automate, how do we streamline the whole construction process so that, 80 to 85% of the work is done in a shop mm -hmm. and only 15% of the, of the work is actually done on site. And so what that does is that the, the, the ultimate yield is that we can build the garden suite for under hundred thousand dollars, under hundred thousand dollars for a 300, 350 square foot unit. Like turnkey? Turnkey. And so, or it'd be a hundred thousand or 600 bucks a month, like as a lease, as like a car lease. Wow. And, and looking at it, as a, a way to like one week from start to finish, complete construction. So you prefab all in a plant and one week on site and done. One week on site. That's the goal. Now, wow. we're not going to do volumetric prefab. Volumetric prefab is complicated because you're limited to the streets that you yeah, have to drive yeah. in. So this is going to be more of a, uh, a let's say, a, a, let's say an alternative to the panelization, but it's a, it's more of a smart panelization because mm -hmm. it's, using kind of foldable technology and, and yeah. things but like that. But if it's one week on site, if you built it traditionally, it would be what, at least a year, right? Well, it's garden suite will, will probably take about four to five months. Yeah, right? so you, you're cutting it by like, ten, more than yeah, 10 times. Yeah, That's yeah. crazy. And, and also, uh, there's not going to be hammering and drilling and loud mm -hmm. uh, construction noise on site. The, the whole goal is to try to mitigate and so that the work done on site is just more like securing, fastening, and fitting versus, mm -hmm. you know, all the kind of the, the noise that construction makes, right? Yeah. And so nobody wants uh, all this noise in your neighborhood, right? And so you, you briefly you touched on the financing aspect. Is your plan to offer uh, financing so people who may not have 100,000 lying around can still 
get it built and then say rent that unit for a thousand bucks and so they pay you 600 and they make an extra 400 kind of thing that's correct that's right so that's the option is we're bringing on a financing partner to help us do that that's amazing um so there has been for decades a, a desire at least on the architect's side to bring about more um rationalization and industrialization to the building process and it's by and large not taken um there's been some prefabrication uh endeavors out there but they've never like blown up uh yeah. throughout the entire industry why do you think that is and what what were the main roadblocks and one of the biggest example is Katera that yeah. um yeah. went bankrupt last yeah. year i think Yep. So how does how does one overcome that problem? Because it seems like everyone who's tried has had incredible challenges with that. That's a very good question, Arno. And I think uh, I've been researching a little bit about Katera and why they failed. And Katera, I think, first was uh, headed by a software um, CEO mm-hmm. who was not didn't have a thorough understanding of the complexity of the construction processes and in the industry. And the other thing that they, I think they, uh, they just at a high level thought that, okay, if we cut out the middleman, then we're going to save time and save money, mm-hmm. right? So the whole idea was you inboard the engineer, you inboard the architect, you, you know, you don't have to wait for the window supplier. Okay, we're going to create a window company. We're going to make our own windows. HVAC, we're going to make our own HVAC. We're going to make our own plumbing fixtures. So they, they just started too much, too fast, and they're burning through massive amount of cash very quickly. And I think it was just, that was, that was a challenge and a problem. Instead, I think what we're seeing now is the company like Cover, companies like uh, in, in the US, where they're just focusing on ADUs, accessible dwelling units. Mm-hmm. Which is our garden suites and laneway homes. Exactly, yeah. garden suites and laneway homes. And you just start small and you don't overstretch yourself. and You just focus and develop in that scale, small scale, mm-hmm. you you refine that model, you perfect it, then you could you know take it to the next scale. But but Katera never did that. They just like started, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm bidding all the on the all their pro- all the other projects, and then they started the project started losing money. They didn't perfect the process, and it was just it was a nightmare. And, right? and so the other side of that coin is why wouldn't large developers not to pick on them, but say like. Um, Madame Homes, who build thousands and thousands of houses every year, not be interested or even implement that model of, you know, say, uh, panelized prefab, 85% done in a plant, and then one week on site and done. Because you'd think if that works for you at a small scale, they would save a ton of money doing that and still provide valuable service, right? So... That's a very good question. And to me, it's like the blockbuster model. Why, why didn't blockbuster come up with Netflix? Because mm-hmm. that, was the, that was the obvious choice. They were the, the Goliath and Netflix was David, right? They were much mm-hmm. smaller. Um, I believe Madame Holmes did try to do the panelization, but it, it, it failed miserably. Um, and I think the problem from what I, I, I don't know too much in detail, but from what I can gather and from the study that I've done is they wanted to use conventional methods but just build it at the factory. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference that we're approaching with Clip is, no, not conventional. We have to really think outside the box and look at materials. Like, you know, why would you have drywall, especially if you've got drywall sitting out in the rain, then that's going to create mold. Yeah. But is drywall the only option for interior of a house? No. If you use, like, for example, CLT, mm-hmm. 
you know, CLT can sit outside. Now, th- th- there are challenges with using CLT in wood also because uh, we also ran into, based on our research, that CLT, the, the wood itself can can still expand and contract. Mm-hmm. So conceptually, this idea of the CLT fitting together like Lego blocks, uh, in theory, works really well. But in practice, there are also some challenges because you have to make site modifications. When you have to make site modifications, that's when things become very expensive yeah. and gets complicated and mm-hmm. the time the time gets drawn out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, there's a product, there's a magnesium oxide panel, mm-hmm. which is a product that's um, very readily available in China, but Canada is also becoming a, a, a big distributor of that because we're mining magnesium oxide. Magnesium oxide is very healthy. You could, in fact, those magnesium tablets that you take for health, I mean, that's what that is, mm-hmm. right? So it's very environmentally sustainable it's healthy for you is it similar to a drywall panel it's and like, very similar yeah. but it's 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 a little bit more like it, it feels a little bit more like stone it's a little bit more brittle mm-hmm. there is a kind of fiber fiberglass mesh that you that it comes in mm-hmm. that makes it a little bit more durable but that could be exposed to the elements no issues and it's got a phenomenal fire rating for mm-hmm. example right and if you design it right because you can see and see the groove and you put the joints in so that you don't have to tape the joints mud nail and Sand it again, mud it again, sand it again, mud it again, and then you put a primer and a paint coat. So think about the level of like just yeah, to, labor. It's so labor intensive. Prep doing drywall it. for painting alone is a it's huge a amount of work. Huge amount of work, right? Yeah. But you think about magnesium oxide and you just and it comes in panels, that's it. You don't even have to paint it. They're, they look beautiful in itself. Leave it. Mm-hmm. You just have to put a baseboard and put your your electrical and mechanical chases. Yeah, and then you can work with the the joints to look exactly nice, intentional. Yeah, intentional, intentional yeah. right? I'm I'm just showing as as one example. Mm-hmm. We don't have to use magnesium oxide. You can use other panels, and and you know there's other you know fire rated MDF and fire rated you know plywood panels. So if you want the kind of the wood look, certainly you can achieve that. But we have to approach things in its inception differently, fundamentally different than the way that we have been approaching it. Right? Yeah. So you're, you're saying to, to make prefab successful, you really have to step away from everything you know, basically, and think about the problems differently. Yes. That's very interesting. Yeah. So um, to go back to your, your two initiatives, uh, Clip Homes and Multitouch, what, what has the response been to that, both on the political side and also maybe by the general public or the industry? So, you know, I employ about, uh, you know, currently we're about 32 architects and out of 32, I would say probably almost 25 of them are millennials and Gen Z's. They're young, mm-hmm. right? And I ask them all the time at the office, hey, listen, you know, you guys are renting right now. Would you buy one of these? And the response has always been like incredibly resounding yes. Mm-hmm. I would love to live in one. So first I needed to make sure that, you know, people actually that there's a market for it and then people would want to live in these kind of places. Um, so from the demand side, we're pretty confident that there's a big demand mm-hmm. from the demand side. From the, uh, uh, I think your question was also from the political, the, yeah. the, from the staff and the, from the staff side, we're seeing huge interest as well from mm-hmm. staff, city staff. Yeah. From some counselors, depending, you, you mm-hmm. get some hot and you know, warm and, and lukewarm mm-hmm. depending on where you are. Uh, well, the good news is that the elections are coming up. So <laughs> if your councillor is not supporting those initiatives, time to vote them out. However, there are uh, there are some residents in the neighborhood, depending on where you are, that are strongly opposed to this. And I could see this, you know, the fact that the Garden Suite bylaw got, you know, appealed and, uh, you know, and now 
people can't do them anymore. It, it, it's it, there, it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. I can tell you, Arno. People don't like change, um, especially in Canada. Especially the the sort of the the incumbents in already the resident the homeowners that already have. You know, they're all sitting on a very nice retirement nest egg, mm-hmm. uh, you know, living in the neighborhood. They don't want change. I mean, they're right? acting rationally, but w- what drives me nuts is those people, <laughs> again, to generalize broadly, let's say they tend to be a little more liberal and they'll say, oh, we want all those nice things for all the poor people and the future yeah. immigrants. But their actions say the exact opposite. Right, right. Um, and there's a, a huge amount of cognitive dissonance for those people who say they want to support the society and the culture as a whole, but when it comes to their own interest, it comes first. And and frankly, even if the, first of all, there's no evidence that densifying the city is going to make their property lose any value. If anything, yeah. it's probably going to gain yeah. value. But also it's very selfish because they're the ones who were lucky enough to buy, say, 15 years ago or lo- or even earlier than that. And when it was still cheap, but it's no longer the case. And you have, I think now you have to have a household income of $180,000 a year to be able to afford a home, uh, say a, a detached home or a, or a town home. Yep. And I think it's 130 to afford a basic condo. Yep. It's insane. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's really insane. Yeah, so yeah. if you're a lawyer, man, maybe you can afford it. But if you're a blue collar worker, even if you make good money, you probably don't make that much money. Um, so it, it's, it's quite insane. So yep. can you tell us a little bit about the, your recent ULI workshop and how effective it was to bringing the city builders, developers, and architects and planners together to address some of those issues? I, you know, I went in a little bit, uh, jaded and skeptical, but to my surprise, I thought it was very, very good. And, uh, I think it was really good to get different perspectives. First mm-hmm. of all, again, um, this idea that I brought in when I mentioned at the beginning, the problems that we face today needs to be, a, they're multifaceted problem. It can't be solved by one party or one discipline. It's got to be multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. We need input from all sides. Mm-hmm. And I think the city recognized that. And it was really great because the, the panel was composed of a very diverse range of people from architects to planners to you know, builders, developers, and uh, um, and marketing, and you know, mm-hmm. salespeople. Like it was re- is really well uh, composed. Um, you know, I I really appreciated it. Um, having said that, um, they're going to take those recommendations. They're going to have to take it to council. They're going to report to council, and I hope council will adopt. But even if they did adopt, uh, you know, our democracy is very fragile. That any that it can be kiboshed by you know, different resident groups and neighborhood mm-hmm. associations. Mm-hmm. So it, even though it makes sense to, you know, 75 to 80% of the people out there, you know, it, it you know, our, our democracy is set up so that it, the 20% can technically kibosh mm-hmm. the interests of 70% of the people. Now, I wanted to bring up this point because the reason, you know, my why of why I want to do this is, is, um, you know, if you really think about housing, like the basic human need, housing, shelter, yeah, yeah. clothing, and food, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of basic, basic human need. So if you approach housing as a basic human need, not as a, a want or not as a kind of a, 
you know, this is like a luxury item, but think about it as like wearing clothes, like you, everybody yeah. needs clothes. Then I think we're going to approach the problem differently mm-hmm. and, and with, with greater kind of level of authority. And if, if people recognize that, then I think we'll approach it differently. But I, until there is that sense that, you know what, that you and I, we, we all deserve basic housing, right? Like it's, it's a human rights issue. It, unless we actually think about it that way, mm-hmm. it's going to be, change is going to be very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. Um, and do you think the solution should come from more from the government or more from the market? I think it needs to come from both. I think there needs to be a recognition from the government that, that the policies that they, they have put in place is not working. Like mm-hmm. what I what would be a shame is they just throw that gobs and gobs of money into, you know, into, you know, builders to build like one type of, you know, that apartment form of housing that we see everywhere in the Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. Which tends to be the model for affordable housing mm-hmm. or kind of mid-rise or low-rise scale. You can't live in the city. So now we're going to put you in the middle of Timbuktu, let's mm-hmm. say in Midland or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being in Midland, but the no, reality is... if you is, work in the city, the commute becomes horrendous, exactly. right? If you live in this, you know, where are people who serve, uh, you know, the bartenders, the, the, the dry cleaners, the, you know, the, the um, you know, the, the, the waitresses and the, the people who work at Starbucks and Tim Hortons and, and, and the McDonald's, like where, where are they living? Right? Mm-hmm. Where, where do they live? Do they live in basement apartments with no light in their, mm-hmm. you know, like, like what about them? Right. And I, I think that's what my concern sometimes with these affordable housing projects is you're, you're ghettoizing them in, in certain areas. And uh, I think we have to be very, very careful. Right. Because like, if I, and to be honest, I, like I'm one of the privileged, I, like, I, listen, the, yeah, the reality is that really. we're both yeah. living, you know, we live in a great city. We live in, we're probably at the top 1% of the world in terms of, in terms of income. Mm-hmm. But, but like, um, you know, I don't want to be thought as as a guy who lives in Thorncliffe neighborhood or St. Jamestown because that's, you know, affordable. Mm -hmm. That's not where I want to be. I want to be in the upper beaches or I want to be in, you know, Leslieville Mm -hmm. living. Sure, maybe not, you know, in a 3,000 square foot detached home. I'm happy with an 800 square foot or 900 square foot, you know, three bedroom apartment. But that to me, being in in a community provides more dignity than being allocated to a, a, a kind of an affordable housing project. That's what I was going to say. It's about dignity, right? right? It's about, you You might be a, a quote-unquote lowly Starbucks barista, but dignity is as important to you as it is Absolutely. to the wealthy person. Right? Absolutely. And, and that's what makes great societies when everybody can live with dignity, even if they have different means. Absolutely. You know, I was, in my in my talk, we, we researched four cities that, um, are more affordable than Toronto. Mm-hmm. And uh, one city that stands out is Houston. In Houston, they have no zoning bylaw. Yeah. The, everybody really uh, fought against that. And the average home in Canadian dollars is $250,000 mm-hmm. in Houston, average detached home. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think you could build affordable housing for $250,000 in, in, in Toronto right now. And so it goes to show you that Again, I'm not saying Houston is a model of a phenomenal city. I'm not saying that at all. However, 
uh, they have addressed their housing issues mm-hmm. because it, you know they made it accessible and easily. You know. And so I have a little anecdote to to speak to that. I have a friend who just bought a, a huge apartment in uh, in Chicago, not downtown, a little bit outside yeah. of the city center. And I was shocked when she tell, told me how much she paid for it because it was less than the cost of a, a studio condo. And it's like a 2,000 or 2,500 square feet unit in a beautiful old apartment right. building. Right. And like... That's amazing. So, uh, of course, Chicago doesn't have the pressure that Toronto has because it's a city that's been losing residents. But there's there are cities that are very similar in many ways. They're in similar climates. They're economically very similar. And there's a huge difference. And, and those are things we need to look at. I was shocked a few years ago to learn that Tokyo, which is the biggest city in the world by any measure, has managed to keep its affordability... Uh, under control because they've allowed early on a lot of different options Mm. um, for people to build their homes. They have those tiny, really tall and skinny two, three story houses that might have one or two units in them. They have lots of tall apartment buildings. They have a bit of everything, Mm. but for the largest city in the world, um, which is arguably probably one of the most powerful economically as well, it's impressively affordable. So it is possible. It's not, it doesn't have to be New York, London, or Paris. Exactly. It is possible. It is possible. And, um, you know, it becomes more important as, as we bring in more immigrants, as we, as a city want to grow and we want to attract talent, um, you know, uh, affordability becomes a big problem. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to, as a global city, not, not going to be able to attract the right talent and right people. Uh, you yeah, know. you run the risk of becoming another San Francisco where you only have tech workers that can't afford it, but there's no one else who can't afford it and everybody exactly. leaves. Exactly. So that's not a good thing. No. Um, I think that's all the questions I had for you today, but do you have any last thoughts you want to share with the audience? Anything you want to add that uh, you think is important to put out there? Um, no, I mean, I think like... Uh, Arno, like I, I said in the beginning of my talk, you know, I originally born and raised in South Korea. I grew up in India, South India and Bangladesh. And, you know, and uh, I was, I went to school in the U.S. for a little bit. Um, I did a lot of odd jobs here and there, lived in different parts of, uh, you know, the U.S. But, you know, Toronto is a great city. It's it's probably one of the, I fell in love with the city uh, 23 years ago mm-hmm. um, because it was, it was a city of diversity. They embraced diversity, you know. Um, it has a lot to offer. It, no it has a lot to offer. And, you know, I think um, that the city I, I love, I just, I would, it would hate to become a city that nobody can afford to live in. And I think, um, uh, I, I think it's really important that um, policymakers and councils and politicians and uh, people recognize that. And I, again, the, the we're not asking for much. We're just asking to kind of open the zoning restrictions a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And we're not asking for billions of dollars. If you open it up a little bit, I think that's gonna the market, right? The market will dictate the solutions. But you have to open it up so the market can do it and do its job. Mm-hmm. And I, I think. Every citizen has a duty to be interested in those issues and vote. Like I became Canadian a few months ago 
And I decided to stop being cynical about politics because that's the easy right. solution, right? right. So, oh, right. The, this politician is an asshole. Right. This one thinks about <laughs> himself only. Right. But the reality is like as a, a voter, you have the ability to change. And I know it may seem like a vote won't make a difference, but enough votes will make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned briefly earlier, the municipal elections are coming up in the fall, I think. June, I so, think. Or June. Yeah. Oh, so that's even sooner. It's time to, to use that power that we all have, at least as Canadians. Absolutely. And, we should uh, vote. And make sure to you yep. vote for the right, uh, for, for the person who supports what you're interested in, at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. This was a very interesting conversation and hopefully the first of many. Thank you, Arnold. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.